0: Welcome to the Healing Grove Podcast. I'm Dr. Kristen Ryman, an integrative holistic family physician, author of Life After Lyme, and host in this virtual space of learning, healing, and growing. I believe humans are like trees, and our physical limb is only one of many. Health on all limbs of the tree, emotional, conceptual, social, spiritual, is absolutely required for the whole tree that is you to be vibrantly well, I created the Healing Grove podcast as a place to showcase some of the world's best integrative and holistic medicine, to expose you to transformative tools and mindset shifts for all limbs of your tree. I hope you enjoy our conversation in the Healing Grove today as much as I enjoyed having it. Hey, Thomas. Hi, Kristen. How are you?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Awesome. Thank you. I'm so excited to have this conversation, but first, I want to let people know who you are. So here i go so everyone this is my dear friend thomas broge thomas Roach has been practicing qigong taiji meditation um, and a bunch of other things for the past 35 years he's a doctor of chinese medicine and a seeker of truth thomas has studied the world and with many great masters around the world and has never stopped seeking the Tao. It's a common thread for him. He holds a master's degree in traditional Chinese medicine, has completed Harvard's mind body medicine program and teaches in many of the ancient lineages of Taoist wisdom traditions, including Jiao Bao, Er Mai and Dragon Gate. He's also a father of two and an awesome husband to my awesome friend, Brenda. And I am so delighted to know him and he played a really instrumental journey or part in my own healing journey. I got a lot of acupuncture from him, some herbs, but more importantly, some really helpful perspective shifts along the way. So thank you so much, Thomas, for being willing to share some of your knowledge with this audience today.
1: it's my pleasure. It never ceases to amaze me. um, The new ways in which you, Kristen Ryman, find a way to try and reach out and make the world a better place by giving people tools that they can use to live healthier lives. Your dedication is pretty outstanding.
0: Thanks, Thomas. That means a lot to me. (laughs) So we're going to get to some awesome tools, I think, from you a little bit later for people who are struggling with complex, chronic, baffling mystery illness. But before we do that, I really want to how would I want to invite you to share a little bit of your story and what brought you to the healing traditions that you're currently using to help people.
1: Well, it's funny. I was writing that bio not too long ago and I wrote 25 years instead of 35 years. Cause I just kind of forgotten how long ago I started on the like professional side of just seeking this work. Um, which was in like the early eighties. But uh, I think my story is, is, is like many people's stories. Um, I grew up in a house, you know, my dad was like a big drinker and he was a brilliant genius, but also an alcoholic. And um, I was the youngest of a family of five. And my mom was a full-time school teacher and everybody had their hands full. And I think very early on um, my consciousness awoke to the fact that I was gonna have to really be able to perceive the situation happening around me with great detail, like far below the surface in order to survive and thrive. And I think that first began with just older siblings and then with the chaos of the house and um, the many other kind of traumatic things that occurred along the way. But I was unknowingly honing a, a skill of perception that would come to serve me. And I think as a as a healer and a seeker, those people, at least myself, um, you know, at a very early age, I just started asking the question, why? When I think people don't often ask it so much later in life, but the amount of suffering I saw early on and continued to see um, really, really brought this question home of why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much pain? Why do people make so many bad choices? And it was, you know, downtown Boston in the 60s and 70s and desegregation and forced busing was happening and there was just a lot of pain and suffering around. And um, I mean, there was a lot of joy and it was actually a very magical time as well. But I really learned, um, not learned, I really needed to know uh, why things were happening. And so that became kind of my point of focus for a long time um, into my mid-20s, early 20s. And at some point uh, I think I shifted from why to how. As I came to the realization, I mean, in Boulder, in the early eighties, when Trungpa Rinpoche was still there, I came to the very clear realization that suffering is part of the human condition. It's part of why we're here. Um, and then it came much more, became much more about, well, how, Are we suffering? And also what can we do or not do? And I'd say at this point in my career, 35 years later, the not doing is maybe the most important part. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So that's so true. Right. And um, one of my, one of my favorite people in, My residency training used to say to me you know don't just do something stand there you know which kind of gets to that right the power of of bearing witness to someone's story and not feeling like the need to or acting on the need we all feel the need to do something right but but sort of suppressing that urge to go in and try and fix things one of the most important things that, that um i remember about the first time you treated me with acupuncture was that you heard my whole story and in my mind, it was still a total chaos narrative. I mean, I was like, felt like I was spinning out of control, but you heard some things in the story or maybe you didn't, maybe you just decided to tell me this to take me to the next step. But you said, you know, I can tell you're already on a healing trajectory, which was like, boom, it was like, really? Wow, that's, that's good to know.
1: It definitely wasn't a calculated statement I mean, you know, I'm a projector, <laughs> which means I don't have any ideas of my own. <laughs> I'm just the mirror, right? So
0: No, I don't think that's what it means. I no, think
1: it, it doesn't. Means, but yeah. as a non-energy state, like the ability to perceive what's happening and reflect it back yeah. is what I was doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I
1: mean, that's, that's what hard. kind of moved me like out of the doing of Chinese medicine on its own and into the whole Pathfinder work was that I wasn't giving people enough tools to learn how to, you know, what we say, way bu way, like do not do, to be able to be in a state and pause and say, okay, is there something to do here or not? And if not, how can I turn down the volume on the doing side of me? Because we're in, the, I mean, we live in a world. And I don't mean the culture, I mean the world, like the three-dimensional world. That's all about doing. Everything's marked by what happens. That's how we mark time through space. So doing is like our default mode. Right. That's the finite part of us. The infinite part of us is perfectly comfortable not doing because it's not doing all the time. And when we access the infinite construct, and we can step outside of the need to do.
0: So how do you help people? Let's talk about just your one-on-one practice where you're seeing people in New York and around the world. How do you help people cultivate the ability to be with themselves without doing, especially when they're in pain or they're in fear or they're in toxic relationships or environments, like it sometimes can feel like, well, I have to get out of here or I have to get to the next step in my journey. But that often leads to them thinking about a plan of what to do as opposed to more of how to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, you talk a lot about complex diseases, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea that like there's an order of operation and when you treat along an order of operation, you can hit each process as it's rising and move to the next one. But if you tried to skip over it, it wouldn't work. I think it's, it's the same with these things. Like if you tell someone, or if you're talking to someone who's in a toxic relationship, and it's obvious that the toxic relationship needs to stop, the first step isn't, well, you need to get out of that relationship. <laughs> because that's like 5 for 10 steps in and you don't have the infrastructure to do that. So with all of these things the ability to interrupt yourself mm-hmm. and actually interrupt yourself. So we use the body as an input tool for the mind and the mind as an input tool for the body and they're of equal value. So if I can use my body to stop my mind I will. If I need to use my mind to stop my body, I will. If I try to use my mind to stop my mind, it usually doesn't work.
0: Hmm.
1: If I try to use my body to stop my body, it doesn't really work. There's nobody driving it. So we'll often say to people like, okay, the first thing you need to do is be able to interrupt yourself. And there's a lot of great ways to interrupt yourself. You can shake you can do deep breathing and hyperoxygenate your blood. You can do breath holding. You can do box breathing. You can make contact with something. You can change your physical environment by putting yourself in a bathtub or up on a hill. You can turn off all the lights. You can put on binaural beats and listen to theta waves or alpha waves or whichever wave, depending on what you want to do. So there's lots of ways to interrupt the mind that don't take a lot of time but we'll shake it out of the pattern it's in. And then once you take it out of the pattern, then you can actually observe what's happening again with a a new mind, like an open mind with a new gaze.
0: So it's almost like like a way to push, like to press reset on the whole system.
1: It is, it's like turn it off and turn it back on again. Did you try that yet? (laughs) Right, like that's every computer problem the
0: first step. Did you check your connections? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I would love to, I would love to have you walk us through one or two of the most kind of applicable or accessible um, of those tools. Would you do that?
1: Yeah. So let me preface this by saying, if you don't connect with the way that you're doing this, you'll never be able to do it when you need it the most. And usually the way that we connect with things is either they bring us joy, make us feel fulfilled, or ease our suffering in some other way. So if you learn a technique and then you're completely stressed out and you're like, okay, I'm gonna box breathe now. (laughs) It's It's not gonna work. So identifying the way that you wanna interrupt yourself is as important as the tool itself. So for some people, I would say literally, like have that song you know that percussion dance song or whatever it is that you can just dance through one song that's just gonna take you off on a dance if you're a dancer if you're a singer put on a song you love to sing to I know you do this I do this all the time like if you don't have a song you want to sing to but you want to chant or just make sounds sound is a frequency vibration it's like a micro shake throughout your body um, the breathing techniques are all really good. I like the extreme ones the most because I tend to be extreme. But depending on how much energy you have and how you're feeling and what your you know, level of health is that day, you, these things will all shift. But um, like a simple box breathe, is a, it's breathing through just the nose and you do a four second breath inward You slight pause, four-second breath, outward, pause. And that's a standard way to slow down the nervous system. If it's really going nuts on you and that doesn't do anything, you want to go to four seconds in and then six seconds out. And you can go all the way up as, you know, everybody's respiratory efficiency is different. In fact, your box breathe might be three seconds in depending on how well you're processing oxygen. Um, but as a practice, a slow breath in that pauses and has a slow breath out that pauses just through the nose with the mouth closed will start to generate um, a parasympathetic response and the body will start to go into this classical relaxed state. And the two ways that you'll notice it the most is the temperature in your body on the surface will change and you'll start to produce more saliva in your mouth. So if you're feeling saliva in your mouth or temperature changing or your muscle tension decreasing, or your hands feel like a little puffy, then it's working. Then it's doing what we want it to do. And then once the nervous system dials down, because the, The function of stress is to narrow your thoughts to a target that you're either running toward or away from, right? You're in the fight or flight state. Mm -hmm. When you allow it to broaden, what happens is options start to appear. And maybe the biggest thing to take note of once you start doing this is that when the options start to appear, the first one that we see that isn't like the one we've been going to all along it's easy to kind of grab for it. And when you grab for it, you'll often jump back into the sympathetic response and drive at it with the same force that you were driving at this other experience that you were running toward or away from. So I would say, and this is where this piece is so important, once you've interrupted and the field starts to open and all these choices start to arise, to just observe for a while, like let minutes go by where things just start showing up and try not to focus in on them too much, but to just allow them to come up as ideas, maybe even write them down and let them go and start to let a larger array of information come into your consciousness than what you're currently using. Cause it will, it naturally will.
0: So what I'm hearing is that even though it, it's a slow practice, it slows you down, it slows your breath rate down, it slows your nervous system down and switches you away from the fight or flight, freeze response into the sort of healing, digesting, resting and you know calming parasympathetic state. The tendency of all of us might be as soon as we're there to be like, okay, done, check out my list, here's my new option, I'm going. But you're actually saying it's a two-part practice. You've got to check off the first box and then actually be with what emerges before you act on it.
1: Yes, so there's another piece. <laughs> so you interrupt whatever physical technique or mental technique, then you observe for long enough to allow for contemplation to happen, which is the non focused experience of your inner voice and intuition connected to. What we call the Tao or everything. And then the last piece is what we call Wei Bu Wei, which is to do or not do. So it you want to arrive at this moment when you go to narrow to a single point with the idea that even if this is the thing, if there's no action to be taken right now, then you don't. And you move on to whatever's next. And I think that might be where we waste a lot of time. Because I know for myself and all the people I work with that there's a lot of doing that doesn't do anything. And even if they've interrupted and then opened their mind and got to this new, new idea and then they go up to it, but it isn't the time for that, or that's not yet even though they have found it, or it's gonna take a while to get there before they can actually flip that switch start trying to do stuff to get to it and all that doing is again unnecessary so if you found your perfect answer oh i need to go to pennsylvania spend a month in an airbnb see kristen Ryman every day get like her downloads and work and and have this incredible experience but i'm in georgia (laughs) and i can't go there till the summer then that should go, okay, that's in the not-do category. That's in the boo way. Mm -hmm. And then the question becomes, what's the most important thing for me to doing now? And that's what brings you back to the present. And then you would do the practice again. Having put that constellation there, you'd come back and say, okay, well, now, let's ask a clarifying question, since we're not doing that right now. What's the doing for, for me here and now? And then you get the into next,
0: the next possible step in that general direction. Yeah.
1: No. Yeah. Cause it might be that at the end of like a series of like, you can do multiples of this. Right. And it could be that at the end of the, the thing that you realize is, well, this was the doing for right now, right. Doing this practice. And actually the best thing I can do right now is go to bed and start tomorrow with the next step. So, We say like one of the practices that we work on, because these, these practices are all cyclical, right? The more you do them, the more they reveal about you and the, and the way that you perceive the world. They're frames, right? Like you look at the picture in the frame today, you're like, aww. You look at tomorrow and you're like, ah. You look at the next thing, you're like, no! You know, it, <laughs> it shifts radically your perception, but the, but the image doesn't shift. You come home one day, you're happy to be home, the next day you hate being home, the next day you don't care about being home, the next day you're away from home and you really wish you were there. Home hasn't changed. So a practice is fixed in that it allows you to see yourself changing as you're moving through it. So the more you work through these circular practices where the goal of the practice is to get better at the practice, it'll yield much more efficient results. Instead of just thinking about, I'm going to use this practice because I want to get to that thing. Because in the end, our ability to convert in real time our experience is the only actual control we have. Like the people who you hear about who do these things like, oh yeah, I went and had a, I had a tooth pulled and I didn't use any Novocaine. I was just meditating through it. And you're like, what? Wait a minute, what? And what you find is there's like a whole story that leads up to that result that goes back 10 years of practice in this particular way that leads to that. But the person doesn't tell you that (laughs) because that's not, you know, interesting conversation. Buddhism doesn't tell you that after 10 years of, you know, rigorous cognitive dissonance and delusion shattering revelations that cause agony and pain, you will eventually arrive at a place Of facility where you can maintain the clear awareness that you are not your thoughts and you are not your body and you are not your emotions. And you can then move through this world feeling it all, but not being attached to it all. They just say Buddhism will bring you peace (laughs) because that's the result. But it comes with this, with this work. And I think especially in the, you know, the age that we're in, People, they want that mindfulness, you know, they want that meditation. They want that clarity, but, but they're not hearing. um, They're not being told or informed that there's an effort that's perfectly matched to the effort that you have right now to begin to take you on this journey of self-discovery that will eventually lead you to this place of great facility and wonder but it takes time and you will along the way grow the whole way through it it'll keep feeding you but it's not an overnight process and it's not about the world outside of you
0: yeah so the second part of that I can get behind the first part is that I kind of wish there were some shortcuts
1: (laughs) there's tons of shortcuts there's tons of shortcuts. I mean, yeah. you have, in our tradition, deep inside the mud pill palace, you know, in your brain is the spark of enlightenment that exists within you. And the reason that the sudden realization schools will suddenly have realization is because the steps you're taking are designed to peel away the delusion until eventually you just realize, like, oh, right, I'm enlightened. And like even the things we just did are all shortcuts instead of just sitting in meditation, take this somatic tool that you have. Don't, don't forget about it. Like this can stop your brain in a second and reset it. Your brain can change the way that you're experiencing this. Like your consciousness experienced this experiences, this body mostly on autopilot. And the more you can imbue awareness into it, the more efficient the tool becomes at helping you. Yeah. So in our tradition, we say slow is the fast way. And it's catchy and people like it. But what it really means is if you slow down, you take something that used to take one movement or one increment of time or space and you make it many and when you do that you all of a sudden generate all of these new options for change all along the way so when we do a somatic process like we'll say raise your right hand you raise your right hand and it's one thing and then i'll say okay take 30 seconds and raise your right hand And don't finish until you get to 30 and all of a sudden you can't see it on camera yet, but it's coming. (laughs) Here it comes. (laughs) Right. So what's happening. And if you're watching this and you do this, what's happening is that the awareness of the whole experience, the consciousness that's in my arm now, and All the different things that I did to get there, they all become little models that I can use to break down time and say, okay, hold on. I know this just felt like this, but if that feels like this, then anything else that feels like that can be slowed down in the same way. So when you're in a feeling and you're in a discussion or you're in a heated debate or you're in a fight, if you go like, whoa, wait, let me just do this. This is an interruption of my mind that causes it to reset and changes the way that I'm interacting. So the shortcuts are all around us.
0: I love it. Thank you for breaking it down to the composite pieces of the shortcut. Do you do this every day? Like, do you find ways to stop yourself every day? And if so, how many times a day are you talking?
1: I mean, 50 at least.
0: And And do you you have a prescription for people? Like do you recommend 50 or is that like master level? Like, what do you, what do you think?
1: No, I mean, so here's the caveat. If you don't know, hold on, hold on. (laughs) Hmm,
0: By the way, I do it much faster. It's pretty good, right? Whoa.
1: I know. It's so simple. It's so simple.
0: Where have you been all my life, 36? <laughs> lift? <laughs> all right. I mean, not am 50, but I'm definitely building that in. That was profound.
1: It's pretty profound. I mean, that's what Tai Chi is all about. That's what Tai Chi is for. Yeah. Like, the reason Tai Chi is the you know, called the greatest martial art or whatever, is the the level of organization you can generate through your whole body, if you're moving it integrated at that speed, means you're like learning how to map these deep kinetic chains from fingertip to toes. And then if you can do them enough times at that speed, then when you go to do them fast, they maintain their integration. Um, But back to the recommendation piece. So the statement goes like this. In my heart, there is my essential nature, my shing, what I am infinitely, before and after this incarnation, if you believe that, or your soul while you're in this body. That part of me knows exactly who I am and what to do or not do all the time. When I feel aligned with it, my life is effortless and connected and joyful and fulfilling and purposeful and works. When I'm disconnected from it even a little bit, it starts to feel uncomfortable or difficult or effortful or unfulfilling. The sooner you can identify a moment where you go out of alignment with your essential nature, you can do this practice. But what happens is, we often only see the big ones. Like, oh, that person's crying next to me, I guess I've really gone too far. <laughs> or you're fighting with your wife and the dog walks out of the room and you're like, oh, wow, okay, the dog just walked out <laughs> of the room. Like, <laughs> what frequency are we operating at right now? And so you catch those and you practice with those. And then what happens is the next layer will just show itself to you of like, oh, I'm rushing through something because I, because I don't know why. Oh, I'm rushing. Okay, stop. All right, let's do the breathing, do the hand, whatever it is, come back, observe. Oh, I'm rushing because I'm afraid that uh, this won't be good enough or I'm not up to the task or I'm not enough or I'm angry at the person who I'm delivering it to and I haven't told them and I don't know what to do with that. Etc. And it's not that you have to solve all of these things. It's that you have to see them in some way, you have to become aware of them, and then return to you. So when you return to your center, is what happens in that moment of interruption. And then you say, okay, do I need to have that discussion with that person before I finish this or not? Way bu way, yes or no? Like do not do. Is it in my integrity to deliver good work regardless of who it's going to, because I take pride in the work that I do and I believe in my work? Is it that I always want an expression of myself in whatever form, including my work, to be as good an expression of me as possible? Or am I just too uncomfortable with the situation until I talk to this person or do something about it to really deliver this work? in which case you should stop doing the work and go have the conversation or take an action. And that's, at its highest level, what happens is you're doing it all the time. Because we live in a world that's constantly trying to, you know, well, hold on, (laughs) so Can we pause there and just back up onto that for a second? So you have senses. You have six senses. The five that we talk about are, you know, smell, touch, taste, uh, hearing, and seeing. 40% of all of your perception of reality is made up from just your visual experience. Mm. Your brain takes 40% and says, okay, I'm going to, this is my backdrop. And then it starts filling it in. Um, each of your senses is unaware that they're sensing, right? So your eyes, if they're like a window, if they're working appropriately, you're not aware of your eye. You're aware of what's out there in the world. So the first thing we try to do is become aware of how the senses are perceiving and start to... demote them in uh, authority over perception. So if I say, look at my hand, you can look at my hand. And if I do this, what would you call that?
0: A fake snap?
1: Fake snap. There's nothing fake about it, it's just not making sound. But the, the ability to process and perceive and project an assumption of what's going on through our senses is constant, and especially through our vision. And we don't realize how much we're relying on one thing until I say, close your eyes. Go ahead and close your eyes. What's that? No idea. Right. It's the exact same thing. You just can't see it. And that's the only cue you're using. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I mean, it doesn't help that we're in a two-dimensional interface, except that, oh, guess what? Your vision is a two-dimensional interface. Mm -hmm. It's not three-dimensional. Light comes in through your eye, projects an upside-down image of reality onto a flat screen, and then your brain Using like the calculations of binocular vision to create depth of field generates a construct that's three dimensional inside of it, and then you use that same sense to project out into the world a kind of bubble of visual construct around you, and then walk through it all the time.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Which is why, when things go out of sync with vision, we find them so either horrible or interesting. Like anytime you take a sensory input and squibble it, like change it, it's either terrifying because I, I don't like the world to be unpredictable so it's terrifying for people or it's really interesting because, oh my God, wow. And now they're seeing that if you take, if you take these senses and punch them up, you know, 200%, all of a sudden our perception of reality becomes much more fluid because we're not used to it. So they're using psilocybin right now for PTSD and the hallucinations that people are having are making them feel connected and one with everything because the separation between themselves and the world around them becomes much more porous. And so they don't feel like, oh, I'm not color. Look, I can move my hand and there's colors coming off my fingers, like I'm color. I am all of this in this world. Mm -hmm. And in our tradition, that's how I view reality. Like I'm not visiting the woods, I am the woods. Mm -hmm. As I'm observing the world and experiencing it, It's changing to meet my observation, right? That's Leonard Susskind's whole view of the event horizon of the holographic universe. I mean, of the event horizon of a black hole is the perfect model for the holographic universe in quantum physics. That's a longer talk,
0: though. That's a a whole other ball of of worms there, can of wax.
1: We should meet for that one, though.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So Um, this this is how I've been spending my work days except I've been doing it with like CEOs and individuals and people with serious illness and whole companies like taking whole leadership teams. And when I put them into these practices, they, um, they wake up.
0: Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. I mean, that's the work with Pathfinder, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a few minutes to share what that's about? Because there are going to be definitely some people who listen to this who are like, that's the guy I want to go into the woods with and have my mind (laughs) expanded with, like, the hand-raised thing.
1: Awesome, because those are the people I want to meet. Yeah. Um, So the Pathfinder work, it's these practices and others, but it's built on this very simple idea, which is that Your essential path through life is incredibly clear if you break it down all the way back to the moment that you're in. And mindfulness and all these other practices understand this and teach this. But for me, because I like um, making things bite-sized and accessible Mm -hmm. that are often so complicated that they just feel abstract, I started building out this method and Really what it turned out to be was that everything I've been doing for the past 35 years played a role in teaching me how to understand and then share this kind of work. So like if you're showing up at my door, you're already in the state where either you're in a circular loop doing the same thing over and over again, and I finally realized that like it's not going anywhere. And you're not sure how to get out of that. Or you've been going in a particular direction and then you hit a wall and you just can't go any further and you've used all your resources and you don't know what to do and you need another perspective. Or you've been struck by lightning, like something's happened that shook your world up enough that you've suddenly realized like a huge priority shift and you're not clear on how to apply that at all. And those are the three, like of the, you know, tens of thousands of people that I've worked with, those are the three things. Mm -hmm. And then from there, there's usually a lot of excitement that people have around this, like, oh, I don't want this anymore. I know that. And that's their first step. And then usually what happens is um, there's a lot of grieving around all the attachment that they have to the way that they have seen things and been living. And they don't see it coming. It's always amazing to me because of course, like if everything you used in your life or understood in your life or built in your life to get you as far as you got suddenly became useless, that's kind of the moment that they're at. And in that moment, there's a tremendous amount of attachment to the things that have worked so far. And really what people find themselves doing to me in the beginning is this kind of wiggle, you know, the kind of like negotiation around like I want to still use my super type A doing power to like do this thing this way. And I'm like, look, it's not that the tool isn't a worthwhile tool. It's just not the one that takes you through this part you can come back later and use that to build like skyscrapers, you know, to the moon. But right now in order to do the next thing and be able to pick that tool up again, you have to put it down first. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the place where people struggle the most. They either don't get past that phase or they do. And if they do, then they get to do the next piece, which is to step off the path they know and into the unknown, which I call getting lost in the woods. Mm-hmm. And they have to stay there long enough. Um, and so a lot of the patients who are probably watching this, right, have been kind of tossed off the path mm-hmm. and are lost in the woods. And it's the same in the disease process as in the mind process, which is that once you've lost all reference point to knowing where you are, you're in a, you're in an oblivious space and it's really easy to panic and try to run.
0: Yeah.
1: And when that happens, you usually run in circles, right? One leg's dominant. So if you're, if you've ever been lost in the woods, if you've ever been lost in the woods, you'll run in a circle. It'll be so big, you probably won't notice it but the dominant leg is going to slowly push you in one direction.
0: Fascinating. I didn't and know that. And you'll just
1: run in this giant circle. Wow. But if you were to stop and kind of do enough, you know, diligence so that you're safe, fed, taking care of yourself, you're in a protected spot, yeah. but then decided like, okay, I can't get out of these woods today. I need to study them for a while. I need to, contemplate them or be here to understand how they work and stayed there long enough to start making choices that were in relationship to the place that you actually are, which is lost. Then your choices start to get pretty interesting. And they start to usually have a much more profound effect than just choices that you just start throwing at things from, from other places that aren't the place you're in. And then the last sort of beautiful piece of the lost part is that you know, there's a place when you finally realize like you're going to be sleeping in the woods tonight where all of a sudden, you know, the cones in your eyes adjust enough and maybe there's a moon if you're lucky and you start to see the life of the forest at night as a, as a member instead of as an outsider. And you start to really feel like oh moss is like cooling during a summer day but it's like achy and cold at night so I'm going to shift off of it and then these darker rocks really hold the warmth longer so I'm going to stay lying on them and maybe like out of the corner of your eye you see a family of deer wake up and they come out and you know all the nighttime animals and when you come back from this experience you have a perception that's with you for the rest of your life of like the gift hidden inside of the shadow. And I think this is why we travel. Travel's like a controlled, especially it used to be before technology really cut in, but it's still a controlled experience of being lost in the sense that you take away all of your cultural touchstones. And so who you are becomes a much more amorphous Thing and the world around you becomes very fresh and new because it's unfamiliar. Mm-hmm.
0: I love that you walked us, I mean, that was almost like a thought experiment that I think anyone with a complex chronic illness should do because yes, right. they were thrown from the path. They didn't just lively leap off it into the chaos of, and the unknown of an illness, right? But yet here we are. So super helpful.
1: I mean, I also, I live with a, you know, I have an ascending aortic aneurysm and the men in my family have died from sudden cardiac death. And although I do the things to monitor it, it's still just this random Mm -hmm. could just take you out. You could just be gone. And as a, as a tool, like the danger of that, causes me to be aware of the choices I'm making. And they're not all the best choices either. Insofar as if I made them only for my heart. Mm -hmm. But if I'm making them for how I wanna live, and I'm really conscious about that, then that's the life I wanna live.
0: Right. Well, this has been amazing. (laughs) So I could sit here and talk to you for 45 more hours, but I know that we're at the top of our time. So I just want to thank you again, Thomas, for sharing some of your wisdom.
1: Thank you. It was super fun.
0: Super fun. So have a great rest of your day. I'm going to stop us there. Okay. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healing Grove podcast. If you liked it, please be sure to like and subscribe. And if you want to deepen your experience further, consider grabbing a copy of the Healing Grove playbook. With journal prompts for this podcast and 41 others, it's the perfect place to record your learnings, keep track of the tools you explore and reflect on your own experience. Finally, it's important to mention that even though I am a doctor, nothing you hear on this podcast, whether from myself or my guests, constitutes medical advice. Any intervention you try should always be discussed with and supervised by a trusted member of your own healing team. Thanks for listening and see you next time in the Healing Grove.